welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest episode of Tech Law Talks. My name is Soham Panchamia, and I work at Reed Smith in the Dubai office, working on all things virtual assets, exchanges, crypto, Web3, tokenization, and everything in between. I'm joined today by the always amazing Hagen Rook, joining us from Singapore, as well as a very special guest, Mr. Wayne Tan, coming in from Open Eden, also dialing in from Singapore. Hagen, Wayne, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hagen first. Oh, sure. Well, you've already done me the honor of introducing me, so I didn't have anything much more to add. (laughs) He has a lot more to add. He's just too kind. You're very, very, very kind. But I will probably leave the limelight to to Wayne, who is a very special guest, and I'm really, really happy that he's been able to join us. Wayne used to be at uh, Signum, a Swiss-headquartered digital bank and wealth services platform with a very significant presence in Singapore. And uh, Wayne uh, spearheaded some of their licensing initiatives, which were very widely reported in the press, but has latterly joined Open Eden, also a very prolific player in the tokenization space. And this is what we're going to talk about today. But without further ado, I might just hand it over to Wayne. Wayne, uh, do you want to give uh, us a Thanks, Hagen. I mean, you've really kind of covered the, the high points there. Uh, I've been... In practice over a decade, you know, touched crypto when it first came out in Singapore and then shifted from private practice to in-house, as you mentioned, Signum Bank, you know, touching what institutions want to do with crypto, with digital assets. And then, you know, seeing the development and the shift towards, you know, tokenization, existing Thread 5 products, bringing broad on chain, you know, that's why I guess I made the jump to Open, open Eden as well, because, you know, that's what, that's what I guess the future is, you know, we're moving what's already there into a new space, you know, and then opening up access for all. So, you know, very exciting work. Have to be very agile <laughs> and flexible in the head when you're, you're dealing with these sorts of uh, <laughs> new new areas. That's really helpful, Wayne. So that actually brings us, as Hagen already mentioned, to the topic of today's podcast, which is discussing the trend, the obsession, the love for real-world asset tokenization that seems to be the talk of the town in the Web3 circles throughout 2023. And that's also why we're so excited to have you, Wayne, because, you know, it would be great if we could start with understanding a little bit about what Open Eden is doing in the tokenization space and what made you excited to join that journey. Ah, thanks for that. So, um, so you know, this is the part the guys will be very happy that I'm kind of <laughs> talking about. So, I mean, Open Eden really is a technology player that seeks to kind of innovate using blockchain and smart contract technology to really disrupt the TradFi status quo, you know, while still operating within, you know, established regulatory frameworks. Now, you know, disrupt is used, I think overused these days, you know, what, what is disruption really? A lot of the existing frameworks and, and uh, technology is really fairly efficient, I would say. You know, there are some pain points, you know, that te- technology te- can address, but what does it mean, really mean to truly disrupt like TradFi? So, you know, um, when, when I spoke to, when I first met the Open Eden guys, you know, and they were kind of explaining what they were doing to me. I was like, this is a very traditional product, right? But where was the, what was the, I guess the USP and what they were trying, what they were saying is that, look, they're all established TradFi guys. 
But, you know, the pain points such as, you know, the various service providers, the intermediaries you have to go through, the T plus one, T plus two, transparency on, you know, valuations, these sorts of things were always stuff that, you know, came up in discussions with clients, with, you know, internally as well. You know, these are pain points that, that just couldn't go away. So it's first product offering, you know, they, they took some time to sit down, think about it, and they developed it in-house was their vault platform, which really addressed a lot of these major points. 24-7 uh, settlement, you know, because you keep uh, assets on-chain to settle. It's transparent because everything's on-chain. You plug into Oracle's APIs with TradFi uh, providers, like information providers like Refinitiv. So, you know, you can talk about a live valuation rather than a monthly, you know, for funds, let's say. You also reduce the number of intermediaries because you leverage on smart contract technology where, in fact, the investor is the one that triggers the transaction you know, rather than, you know, inform the fund manager or the fund administrator. And by the way, you know, I, I jumped ahead. You know, the vault platform is plugged. It's, it's supposed to be plugged into funds right now. You know, the first platform is structured in a very recognizable kind of form where it sits on top of a fund allowing regulated fund managers or, you know, other uh, or funds to basically issue tokenized real assets. You know, what asset? It's totally modular. Right now, we've, we're focused on U.S. Treasury bills. So, you know, the transparency is there on chain. The underlying is held in the SPV. So that's bankruptcy remote. Also another thing that's really hot these days. But of course, you know, it's a fund. So everyone understands what a fund does. It's just that it kind of streamlines the entire process and puts the investor in control when he redeems, when he subscribes. You know, being able to see the transactions online, the, the treasury, the reserves, you know, and, and actually have that, that, that live calculation at any point in time. So in a nutshell, you know, uh, what really drew me to Open Eden and tokenization of real assets is how, how they've kind of put together a platform that people recognize. And when they see the cost savings and the potential kind of disintermediation of, you know, the fund administrator, the, the various other people that, that, that you must, they always, you must have as part of, you know, a fund. Then, then you realize that actually, you know, this, this should be the next step. You know, we're not talking about new crypto products. We're talking about, you know, assets that are accessible directly by the investor rather than going through multiple layers you know that's a really interesting way of looking at it because obviously with what you've just described and with what open eden does it's primarily geared towards at least with the vault application which is the first one geared towards existing fund managers and existing funds which is very much a b2b sort of like institutional grade solution and certainly sitting where i am in dubai the majority of the conversations that have come my way, and uh, I've dragged poor Hagen into several of them until until he just had had enough in a very polite way, was all in relation to retail access for fractionalized real estate, essentially creating a REIT without having to pay for it. And I just wonder that from your perspective, working at Open Eden, and given that this is what you guys do, not the retail part, but this is what you guys do day in and day out, why that strategic decision then to focus on existing fund managers and in a way creating like um, an efficiency model for the activities already undertaken by a fund rather than trying to supplant the fund altogether, which is what a lot of these other players are trying to do. Well, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why, I guess, because, and, and, and just to kind of expand on what I was saying, you know, we, we, we have the platform that is, that's modular. It can be plugged into existing funds and issuers. But, you know, we, Open Eden is, is part of a group, technology group. We have a tech platform. We have a tech company. And we also have a RFMC. So, you know, for now, you know, we are also piloting our own product, obviously. And so we deal with that, that kind of 
you know, that, that kind of tension about, you know, how you want retail access or do you want like professional investors or incredible investors? Who's your target market, right? You know, because when you are talking about crypto, they are very, if you are purely crypto native, you know, Web3 native, you know, you're likely accredited, you know, in some way, shape or form, you know, sometimes you see retail, but, you know, given that they're in this space and they're buying treasury bills, you, they normally can make up the, the qualification. So, you know, in that sense, we don't see so many B2B players. We have B2B players interested in working with us, like either providing custody or, you know, um, working with us to kind of help see how, how we could spread the yield generated from the products. But really, uh, my day-to-day is really we're looking at our customers, right? So that's the first thing, I guess, you know, like uh, in terms of who we look at. And as for supplanting the fund, like what uh, you mentioned, other people are trying to do because there are other competitive products that don't use a fund structure. They, they're structured as maybe unsecured loans or, you know, uh, we have one we have one that I've seen that's structured as a, well, it's a stable coin, so to speak. Most of them have an interesting stable coin, always. Or they want to get around fund structures with some kind of crowdfunding platform, but it's everything but a fund. Correct. And I, I was talking to another kind of uh, professional the other day, and, and I asked him, you know, look, there are a couple of these products out there, right, including ours. When, when And I, because I'm a, I am was a practicing lawyer, you know, you, you need to understand it if you want to explain it to whoever, stakeholders, your investors, your clients. But there's always a part where you reach a black box and you don't really know kind of what happens there to kind of throw out your returns or, you know, how, how does the structure work? And for me, you know, not understanding that is always a bit of a, you know, a bit of a panic point, you know. So I guess when I was I looking to join Euclidon, you know, I had a look. I had a look at what they're doing and said, okay, I understand from end to end. It's a fun, it's very traditional, but... Compared to others, I know how it works, you know, and that gives me comfort in that sense, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, uh, come the beginning of 2023, we saw this sort of sea change in the market where, where you know, previously everything had been about crypto and DeFi and NFTs. 2023, all of a sudden, you know, most of the inquiries that we received, certainly in the earlier part of the year, were about real-world asset tokenization and, you know, the, the, the platform or the, the project in, in question wanted usually to fractionalize or tokenize some form of asset. As uh, Soham says, you know, most often it was it was real estate. and It was just relentlessly real estate, just so much real estate. And, and well, interestingly, it sort of, you know, made us very creative in the workarounds that we, we try to suggest, you know, either territorial workarounds in order to help set up this offering in a way that would avoid onshore regulation, I probably shouldn't say avoid, but structure around in a legitimate <laughs> way. Or there were, you know, creative workarounds where the investors were proposed to be you know actively participating in some way in the offering such that this wasn't a passive investment fund i'm not quite sure that all of those structures were in, entirely watertight and i think we had to always warn our clients about this but mm-hmm. you know truth be told many of those projects probably never saw the light of day and what has proven to be viable though are you know these t-bill backed stablecoin projects and i remember that open eden was the first one that i saw and i was very interested in in it instantly and sort of read up about it and there was even some commentary in the press about rfmc that you you use as you mentioned which is uh, for those who don't know it's a registered fund management company which is a type of regulated fund manager in in singapore 
combined with an offshore issuance structure, etc. And all of a sudden, within a few weeks almost, you know, other copycat platforms kind of cropped up out of nowhere. And then we had a lot of inquiries from various platforms that wanted to do the same thing, but with government securities issued by other jurisdictions. So, you know, not US government bonds, but for example, you know, renminbi denominated securities, or uh, we were looking at Sharia compliant products at some point. So what do you think it is that, that sort of differentiates this product from a lot of the other tokenization products out there? Is it is it the fact that they, they offer a yield, which is in excess of some other yields? I, I think it's um, a function of you need to know what your client is looking for. Right? So I don't, I mean, look, you, you and I, and, and Soham, you, you're aware, like a couple of years back, the yields offered on these products, like DeFi products, ridiculous, taking crazy I mean, it was, amount of yields. It was like completely that. unsustainable. It was bull run mania. Yeah, exactly. You know, so who, who would buy into these projects? You know, like crazy young kids, you know, sell, sell off all their assets and then just put it all into something. But now, I mean, with that, you know, now now that everything's kind of settled down a lot, you know, you talk about yields. Who who wants to use these products? You know, open data structure is a treasury management product. So, you know, USDC sitting around somewhere that they want to kind of just get a stable yield because, you know, how much more stable can you get with a, a treasury bill, right? And given the cost efficiencies from the platform, you know, because of the disintermediation of a lot of uh, the service providers that the platform can supplant, then, you know, you can get a more kind of beneficial yield. And the, tr- and the truth of the matter is that you know where the yield is coming from. It's, it's, it's transparent. You know, there are projects that, that, that say they are, they are T-bill backed, but, you know, there's actually a mix of T-bills and deposits and so on and so forth that you don't really know who's looking after them, you know. And, and in that sense, you know, again, you say, what you say is true, you know, like the copycat platforms, they structure in different ways. They're not, they're not wrong. But the thing is, we as an RFMC, or we have an RFMC, and we are subject to some of the most intense scrutiny on the planet under MAS. So, <laughs> so in addition to a very transparent yield, the RFMC's work is also forced to kind of, uh, well, not forced, but you know we have to adhere to the highest standards. So in that sense, when I talk about know your, your target audience, who are we looking for? We're looking for people who want that stable yield. They don't want to worry like tomorrow something happens and, and then uh, you know everything crashes and they're left with zero. Because today I actually had a conversation with someone who said that what would it cause... Uh, no, what would cause the T-bill, I guess, the yield to drop, right? Or the valuation to drop. Then pretty much they said uh, maybe a 20% uh, change in interest rates in the US, which means pretty much the end of the world, right? So, or the government defaults. So, so at, at that point, there are different problems going on. <laughs> exactly, right. So, yeah. so, you know, institutionals like it because, you know, it's stable. It's, it has that that respectability that they know the service providers are regulated. And on the other side, you have, you know, crypto legends who, you know, they realize that, you know, that crazy kind of uh, returns aren't, aren't there anymore. So now, you know, they, they park it somewhere where they can just keep it working, right? And and it boils down to this because we are not just sitting on our laurels with the tokenization of, of T-bills, you know, we're talking about composability, right? When you If you are just a tokenized property and you can only just hold it and get the yield, what different is that from a from a spreadsheet security or like you know anything a normal security a fund unit right? Composability is key with with blockchain with Web three, you know, and this this is where experts like yourselves come in. You know, like how do you build in composability on a tokenized security or like uh, some sort of capital market product that lets you then use it with other other projects? That that's where all the the fun stuff happens, right? 
<laughs> I don't know. I went a bit off key, but you know, <laughs> that's that's what else. we like here. <laughs> so I think that that one's going to be for Hagen about composability yeah. and moving things around. Well, I mean, what's interesting about any tokenization platform is that as a user or an investor, you only see the front end. And as Wayne says, that front end is intended to be as nimble and transparent and flexible as possible. And even actually, sorry, I should say that from the issuer's perspective or the fund manager's perspective, depending on you know who you're trying to facilitate the tokenization for, that is essentially what you're trying to deliver. But there is a huge amount of stuff that lives on the back end that generally is sort of hidden under the hood, which lawyers like, you know, Wayne, yourself, and so am yourself, and me, you know, we kind of see and have to grapple with. So generally, you know, as you've said, you need a, a, a fund manager. Uh, why do you need a fund manager? And you need a regulated fund manager as well. Just to, to explain for, for people who may not really look into these technicalities uh, on a day-to-day basis, you basically need a fund manager because you have what you kind of call a collective investment scheme here. So it's basically a pooled fund where multiple investors can uh, inject capital and participate. And there are some underlying assets. And basically, those investors then receive pro rata returns from those assets. You also need somebody who can hold the assets. And generally, fund managers don't hold the assets themselves because that gives rise to a conflict of interest. Fund managers really only act as agents in managing assets. And so you need a custodian. So you also have a custodian. And that custodian will typically also need to be regulated if they're going to hold uh, assets like securities, which are capital markets products. And you know, custody of that type of asset is highly regulated in most jurisdictions. So, you know, coming back to the point around modular, sort of flexible composability, whatever you do on the front end kind of needs to work from the back end as well. And you need a custodian that can hold whichever assets you're actually looking to tokenize. You need a fund manager that's familiar with all of that. But at the end of the day, you know, despite the tokenization overlay, we're really looking at a relatively traditional and conventional fund management structure. And and these are structures which sort of in their non-blockchain form have existed for, you know, many, many decades. So that's my thought. I don't know what you guys think. This is is my own personal view, right? I mean, you talk about track record, you talk about innovation, but when, I mean, when you deal with regulators both here and, and overseas, right? You know, they, 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 they understand how things work and they want to learn how, how to do it. But with every new new technology, new way of doing things, there's always a bit of hesitancy, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, do we really want to be the first one to, to, to allow this, right? So it's not wrong. It's not wrong at all. It's a very prudent way of doing business. But at the same time, it's, it's like, you know, what, what the millennials are complaining about. You want a job, but you need experience. You don't have experience because you can't get the job. So same thing with this, you know. <laughs> and and wh- why I think the beauty of, of I guess, uh, the fund structure is that wherever you go, the fund structure is the same. Whether you do it in Singapore, you do it in London, you do it in wherever you go, the EU, it is, it is the same. The same intermediaries are there. So when you layer on a platform across this very traditional structure and you show that the platform can make it more efficient. In fact, you know, like when, when I took a look at their platform, you know, I noticed there are certain things that actually 
we could do better than the, the, the intermediaries. But, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, if we were to implement them now, then most fun, most most places would be like, oh, you know, can you actually do that? You know, should you be actually doing this, even though it's more efficient? Because they're not used to it. So as I guess more platforms move on to or follow what we are doing here, then then, then perhaps the regulators and, and the fund industries or, you know, just the general kind of uh, financial industry will, will realize that these things can change and will change. And it's and once you're on a platform that is modular and is designed to be upgraded, then you can improve it as it goes and you follow that thing, but still retain that kind of comfort that, oh yeah, it's a fun. I know, I know what yeah. I'm doing. It's going to be safe. You know, there's a manager so on and so forth. So you kind of ease them into it. It's like uh, basically, you know, putting a new technological sheen on what is the same functionality. You're still using Microsoft Word. It's just got, you know, a fancier computer that you're using it on. So there's the comfort of the old with the, with the new packaging. Like over here in Dubai, one thing that comes up quite a lot when we're talking about real world asset tokenization is the crowdfunding structure. So I've always a little bit been confused as to why crowdfunding exists separate from fund management. Because within crowdfunding here as well, you have retail level crowdfunding and then you have institutional level crowdfunding. And by that, I mean, depending on who your client is or your customer base is. And the licensing requirements for crowdfunding are much, much cheaper than the equivalent of a collective investment fund in any of the various, you know, whether it's financial free zone or onshore jurisdictions in the UAE. And so that has been one that, particularly for all the real estate fractionalizing enthusiasts, has been one of extreme interest because there are already existing certain real estate fractionalizing crowdfunding platforms that, at least from the face of it, from what I've seen, seem to be doing very well. So I've always been curious where a, you know, pure security, something like T-bill-backed tokens or, uh, you know, some of the more exciting, exotic things that are coming together, like, you know, IP-backed NFTs and whatnot, where would they sit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Then, then you open a whole can of worms about intellectual property and artist rights and royalties. I believe Hollywood's yeah, still on strike about that. <laughs> but, you know, where would all of that sit? You've got the fund manager or the crowdfunding platform manager on one side, you've got a custodian, which Hagen already explained has their role. And then there's the additional side to it, which kind of makes this whole thing fun, which is the fungibility of the, the underlying asset class, which is that I can now take it and presumably list it on a licensed securities exchange and try and sell it in a different way than I would otherwise have access to. The, the question then becomes is is there any buyer side on these exchanges but I think that's that's the that's that's more of a topic to have with a bit of a drink it's a very interesting point let me I, I'll just chip in there very quickly so I mean first interesting point is the whole distinction between crowdfunding and you know other types of structure we're seeing a huge amount of activity in the crowdfunding space particularly in the private credit space which I think probably warrants a conversation in its own right. That there's just a, a huge amount of innovation there. And, you know, we've seen decentralized private credit platforms, but they're now progressively centralizing. And as they centralize, essentially what they're doing is nothing other than crowdfunding. So they, they raise funds from uh, various investors and then those funds are lent onward to a borrower of some sort. So all of that is is super interesting, and we're just seeing a myriad of you know different different structures. But I think that is you know also in many cases combined with a form of tokenization. 
an even more kind of question maybe that I have for, for Wayne is around that last point that you made, Sohan, which is, I guess, trading venues, secondary markets, uh, distribution channels. So obviously with crypto, various distribution channels arose very, very quickly and, and naturally, uh, especially in DeFi, because essentially those channels were viewed as unregulated and you know all of DeFi essentially operates in a relative gray zone. But for securities, that's not the case. And so you're much more constrained, really, in your choice of, you know, different venues where you can trade these instruments, etc. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Do you see a convergence of sort of the, the TradFi security space, or put it this way, the RWA space that you operate in now and DeFi? So we're going to see, you know, more automated market makers for securities or DEXs for securities? To be honest, it really depends on the RWA that you're trying to kind of tokenize, right? So treasury bills, conceivably, you could see a market forming for these, but you know, they are fairly stable products. So I'm not sure how popular it will be because I'm not, I'm not the finance guy. Right? So, you know, that, for that, I'm not so sure. But if you're talking about, for example, real estate, how could you how could you have a market for real estate really? Because uh, if you're talking about real estate, it means it's tagged to property. Property is still in that country, wherever it is, you have the land registers, you have the contracts and these things. How would you ever trade, uh, uh, let's say, a plot of land in Alaska with, with New Zealand, really? Because in New Zealand, they have special land laws that, you know, like that, that, that are unique to the rest of the world. Nowhere in the world do they have it. Same thing with Australia, same thing with everywhere has different laws when it comes to land. You talk about IP, you know, that's so hard mentioned, you know, no government is going to give up their control of the the IP register, right? So it, it's hard to say unless you wrap you wrap these tokens in something else and then you're just trading a derivative of it, which, which can happen. I think it already has happened. But when you talk about actually trading asset, it really depends. If it's a non-fund, if it's like a, if it's meant to be traded, I guess like any sort of traditional security, like a derivative, a structured product is meant to be on markets and traded, then it's an easier kind of way to do it. It's just about how do we integrate this into the existing kind of framework or have a Web3 framework that mirrors essentially what, you know, the normal markets are. That, that would be the easiest way to do it, right? But uh, I guess right now we're just kind of looking at what's the next DVD, Blu-ray, you know, everyone's kind of coming out with their own <laughs> own method. Like you look at uh, Project Guardian, I guess, you know, they have that stand chart back one where they're coming up with the tokenized, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, yield products that they'll be able to trade on the SGX, right? Yeah. Okay, that would be a big win because, you know, you can trade on SGX, then people will start buying yield products on the SGX because, you know, your mom, your dad can just open up an account and they can go buy it. It's easy, right? Or they open up your broker and it's, it's just close your eyes and do it. There's no need to have specialized knowledge, uh, token, uh, wallet, you know, these sorts of things. So it really depends on the underlying, in my view. Well, I always just wonder if you end up wrapping, if you end up wrapping all of these fractioned IP real estate, whatever it is, with all those specialized issues and create a derivative out of it and try and trade in that. Well, derivative trading is already not particularly well regulated. It's not high on the agenda of regulators who are looking to regulate to begin with. But then what's the underlying value of that derivative? You know, can I actually gain something out of it or is it going to be like, the traditional drifters market where everybody's holding the hot potato and nobody wants to be holding it when the music stops. Isn't that the whole subprime mortgage thing? Yeah. That happened <laughs> That's the part that worries me when we, we try and wrap yeah. them up and sell them as derivatives. No, but the, I think the other point which, uh, Wayne, you've alluded to is liquidity, right? Which is a bit of a challenge in the RWA space because you are always tokenizing 
part of something that genuinely exists. And, you know, you can't just produce as many replicas of that as you like in the way that you can in, you know, the traditional crypto space. And so whatever is traded has to exist and there has to be demand for it to begin with. And that creates a bit of a chicken and egg type situation. And I think for many years now also, the tokenization space has kind of suffered from that chicken and egg problem, which is that issuers have tried to understand why they would tokenize rather than go for a traditional issuance. And, you know, in the absence of issuers doing it, regulators have not really promoted this very much. And, you know, uh, no one has really, well, I don't say, I wouldn't say no one, but actually, uh, you know, there has been a lot of, I, I guess, slow progress in, in, in that space as investors kind of slowly catch on to tokenization as a concept. That seems to be changing a little bit now. And certainly, I guess, sort of with, with the product that, uh, that you guys have, I guess it's not going to be a, a, as big a problem because you just seem to be wildly popular. <laughs> uh, that, that, that in itself can sometimes be a bit of an issue because, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Uh, you know, then I'm thinking, I want to do that, but... <laughs> translation, we don't do dodgy tokenomics. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not so much that, you know, like they say things like, oh, this is the next evolution. It makes sense. I, I agree. I totally agree. It makes sense. We can do this, but <laughs> but the laws won't let us do it. And if we do it in one country and it's not doable in another, then what's the point, right? As you mentioned, liquidity, transferability, you know, the, 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 whether you can trade across borders, these are all very important topics that, you know, um, well, in my daily, I have to deal with this all the time, you know, and try to figure it out, you know, with, with you guys help, you know, obviously. <laughs> uh, I think probably wrap up. So I guess I'd like to end with asking uh, Wayne and then Hagen. We've, we've discussed some of the benefits of real-world asset tokenization, some of the issues and drawbacks and the, and the problems that, that, that come with them. What are you most excited about when it comes to, I guess, what you do for a living, <laughs> which is answering all these tough questions about RWA? What's crystal ball gaze for me and tell me, what are you most excited or hopeful to see within the next two or five years in this particular subsector? Okay, maybe I can I can I can go first then, Hagen. And you can poke holes into my, yeah, my sure, dreams. Sure. <laughs> I'll be very happy to take you back on mean, whatever you say, because you probably know more about this. Well, I mean, I've been exposed to a lot more these days. And and really what I hope to see, you know, like I hope to see DeFi come out of the cold, you mm. know, because the number of ideas that are floating around out there, some some good, some bad, some just crackpot crazy, you know, it's just limitless, you know, and and I do feel that, you know, uh, innovation in the in kind of the financial space is kind of plateauing a little bit, you know, there's always like in increments, increments, but, you know, with DeFi is where you see, you truly see like these people trying new things. And uh, the bad reputation, I guess, of DeFi, you're not helped by all the, you know, the, the rug pulls and these sorts of things. But as, as you know, the world kind of harmonizes its, its, its treatment of, of uh, Web3, crypto, assets, these sorts of things. You know, I hope to see them kind of come a bit more to the forefront because it's all about, you know, crypto, the genesis is all about, you know, giving control back to the, 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 the investors or not investors, sorry, the, the token holders or the people. And governance processes in these DeFi areas can can develop further and become more stable and become more accepted so that you know when you talk about financial products offered through DeFi platforms or even DeFi interacting with TradFi platform for example uh, where you could you could use DeFi for loans you could state your for example our t-bills 
you know, because they're stable, stable collateral, why not? Right. So you don't have to worry about swings in the market based on what Elon Musk says. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I want to see them come out and, and really emerge as some sort of a viable alternative. Like you said, crowdfunding is being very popular and DeFi essentially kind of mirrors crowdfunding mm-hmm. in that sense, but with more governance, I feel, especially if people are bought into the program. So mm-hmm. really what I want to see is that, that that kind of come out of the shadows, get integrated, you know, and find like a middle ground in terms of the regulations required. Because, you know, if you <laughs> regulate DeFi the way you regulate TradFi, you must well just do what TradFi does, right? Yeah. You know, there's no point having DeFi. That composability, that ability to take your product, go somewhere, get some value out of it, you know, while still retaining some of the, the, the original. I think that that to me is what I want to see develop in the next, next five to ten, or oh, well, hopefully sooner than five to ten years. One would hope. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll be talking the same points on panels for the next ten years. <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. it's I mean, coming <laughs> I, I would echo what, what Wayne has said I, I really hope to see the technology go mainstream or come out of the cold as Wayne says there are so many exciting possibilities and use cases for blockchain technology and everything that goes with it, smart contracts atomic swaps, all of the efficiencies that they can introduce in traditional capital markets in terms of you know, settlement of transactions and settlement finality and efficient custody and, you know, clearing, replacing a lot of the capital intensive and the clunky processes that we have in TradFi. It won't come overnight, but I I think there are lots and lots of opportunities there. And because they exist, they will be realized uh, over time. I think it's just a matter of time. But uh, yeah, I'm quite excited about that. Oh, well, I'm just hopeful that uh, there'll be more use cases and particularly more use cases coming out of TradFi institutes that decide to get a little funky as opposed to <laughs> DeFi DGENs saying, because this is the interesting thing, they want to get regulated because they want to tell their investors they're getting regulated, but they don't actually want to get regulated. That's sort of the, that's the push and pull that you face with DeFi, DGen inspired RWA projects. They're like, but I don't want all this. And I was like, but you told all your investors you you were doing it anyway. And they're like, yeah, but this is really hard. And more importantly, it's really expensive. Why do I need to spend so much to give regulators capital lockup for all these things? Can't I just do what I want to do? And it's like, well, yeah, so... Yes, I'm, I'm very familiar. Then it takes how long? <laughs> yeah, I just like that evolution. <laughs> but we're launching next month, and it's like, well, then we should have been having this conversation a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I, just, um, I think that's a that's a Dubai thing. I think all the DMs are in Dubai these days. I don't, I don't get them as much these days in Singapore. I think they've all flocked across to you. Yeah, yeah, I get a lot of them. It's very, it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> 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 hey, but you have a lot of things to talk about at dinner. The ideas are, are just like really out of this world sometimes. Oh, this is true. <laughs> the crackpot ones, as you previously mentioned, they they tend to find their way to me. I'm trying to. I'm hoping like a bank comes to me with something boring and serious. That's what I really want to hear. <laughs> hey, but you remember the crackpot ones. That's, that's, that's the ones that you really cannot forget. True though. Today's crackpots are tomorrow's bank, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Just so, which is why I don't name any names. <laughs> <laughs> all right okay i think i think that brings us to the end of it thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of tech law talks and of course if you want to talk about any of these topics or others you can always get in touch with hagen or me and certainly please check out open eden and all the cool and fun stuff that they're doing with real world assets 
Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.